Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Page six of your order of worship as we continue our study of Acts. Um, familiar with my preaching, you know it's very rare for me to take on um, this large of a section. Uh, but with the, what's going on in Acts 12, and I'll explain that in a moment, it's important that we look at the entire saga of Herod together. That being said, uh, we printed the entire chapter of 12. Um, I am only going to be looking at 1 through 11 and then 20 through 24. So uh, 12 through 19, I'm, I'm going to pick up in my next sermon. And, and I'll, that'll make sense when I get there. But um, So this morning, Acts 12, uh, 1 through 11 and then 20 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, before the door was guarding the prison. The prison. And, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. He did so. He said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the second and first, and the, the, when, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robe, took his seat upon a throne and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man. 
Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of the Lord. Our Father, we need the promise that is before us in this passage. We need the certainty that our king is truly the king of kings. Lord, we, we confess we are weary. We confess our anxious thoughts and fears. We confess um, that we are a, an exiled people, increasingly exiled people. Um, and we need to know, Lord, where this is heading. We need to know of your power, your glory over all the kings and kingdoms of this world. And so would you assure our hearts of this promise this morning, lift us to the surety of King Jesus. I pray that you would bless me and help me to preach as I should in a way that gives you glory, Jesus, and benefits the people who are here whom you love very much. So bless the sermon. We trust it to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Chapter 12 of Acts. It's a significant turning point in the uh, greater story of the book of Acts. And I want to help us understand that here at the beginning. Essentially, this marks the end of the first half of the story and the beginning of what will be the story from here on out. And because of that, I think it would help me to pause here and spend more time than I normally do in introducing things. I want to spend some time uh, with a bit of review of where we've been in Acts and what we can expect going forward. So if you remember, Acts begins with the promise of Jesus to his apostles that the gospel is going to start in Jerusalem, but it will reach the ends of the earth. And then shortly after that, it does indeed explode onto the scene in a dramatic way in Jerusalem at Pentecost where thousands are converted. Now, these first converts were Jewish converts, those whose history was the older covenant, what we, what we call the Old Testament, that, that whole story. These Jews were believing that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who therefore has fulfilled the old and launched the new. And so what we see in Acts is the launching of the new covenant story. And so the story begins in Jerusalem, just as Jesus promised, as a Jewish reformation, a Jewish revival, so to speak. And therefore, the conflict that we have seen thus far in the book of Acts has all been Jewish conflict. The Jewish establishment, the Jewish authorities persecuting these Jewish followers of Jesus. Well, what this persecution does is it scatters the early church from their home base in Jerusalem into uh, more obscure parts of Judea. So you've got Jerusalem and you've got the surrounding area known as Judea. And that was still a heavily populated Jewish population, um, but it wasn't the central hub like Jerusalem was. And so now they spread out into some still Jewish areas, but more obscure. Well, what happens there is that the movement begins to flourish all over Judea. And so then the Jewish establishment says, we got to take care of this. So they turn to a Pharisee, a rising star in the Jewish religion named Saul, whom you probably know more as Paul. And they turn to him, and his job is simple. He's going to travel around into all this Judea countryside and put an end 
to Christianity by any means possible, and he was ruthless at it. However, on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself steps in, appears to Saul. Saul is dramatically converted to the way, as it was called then, and then was told by Jesus that you are my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Then, Acts takes a break from Saul takes a break from his story to prepare the reader, to prepare us for that work of Saul taking the gospel to the Gentile world. What hap- what, why, why that break is important is that the apostles and the Jewish converts had to be convinced that the gospel was e- indeed for the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Let alone that it was for them, but that the Gentiles could actually be baptized into the family of God as citizens of the family of God, just like the Jewish converts. So, what happens is that Jesus makes that very clear to Peter in a dramatic way. And then we do see the gospel start to spread in the Gentile world a bit. But it's the Gentile world just on the edge of Judea. So up at the corner of Turkey, uh, about to turn the Mediterranean Sea toward the more centralized Roman Empire. And so it's come to that point and it's about to break through into the Gentile world. Now that alone was surprising. The fact that a city like Antioch um, on the outskirts of Judea... Um, was, was seeing the gospel, this Jewish Reformation gospel thing going on. But to break through into the heart of the Roman Empire would be unfathomable. Well, starting in chapter 13, the next chapter of Acts, that's what's going to happen. The rest of Acts will be the missionary journeys of Paul into the distant foreign world of the Gentiles, culminating in his arrival to the city of Rome itself, the heart of the ancient world. And so in between the Jewish story of Acts 1 through 11 and the Gentile story of Acts 13 through 28 is this famous story in chapter 12. And I say famous for a reason. One of the unique things about our passage today is how much extra biblical evidence it has to support it. There was a historian of the day that you may have heard of before. His name is Josephus. He was a historian, ancient historian. And he himself details the events that take place in our passage. It's easy for us to imagine the scriptures as kind of being these like ancient stories. I hope they're true, not sure if they're true kind of stuff. Well, Josephus, in our passage today, himself records this story in history. And he records it because it was a significant event. This is the fall of the great king Herod Agrippa. And let me explain why that is significant to the Bible. As I said, we are about to witness the gospel go forth from the Jewish world to the Gentile world of Rome's empire. What this means is that From this point forward, Christianity is going to be dealing with the big boys now, so to speak. The Jewish authorities have been persecuting them, but they didn't have much authority because the Jewish authorities existed under Roman authority. So it's one thing for Jews to want to put an end to Christianity, which we've seen thus far. It's another thing for Christianity to catch the attention of the Roman Empire and for Rome to seek its end. It's impossible to overstate how ridiculous the thought of a revolution that called Jesus of Nazareth, not Caesar, Lord. 
how a movement like that could survive, much less thrive within the mighty Roman Empire. Think of it through the lens of Jesus himself. Throughout his ministry, what was his resistance? The Jewish authorities, right? The Jewish establishments, the Pharisees. That's who was trying to stop Jesus during his ministry. And they couldn't stop him. So what did they do? They conspired to get Roman authorities involved. And notice that the moment Jesus catches the attention of Rome, he's hanging from a Roman cross. That's what this moment feels like, okay? The Jews couldn't stop the movement, but good luck with Rome. So here's what God in his providence does. At the, at the onset of that transition into 13 and beyond, here's what he does. Christians are about to go forth proclaiming Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, into the empire, a bold, audacious, and soon-to-be-deadly claim. All the apostles will be martyred. The following they leave behind will be burned in hot wax as candles for the emperor's parties. They will be thrown into the Colosseum and slaughtered for Rome's entertainment. It's about to get really, really bloody. And so at the outset of his missionary journey into the empire... God, by his providence, does something remarkable. He gives his followers, and that includes us, he gives us an eschatological preview, meaning a preview of where this is going to end. And it will end with all powerful enemies of Jesus made his footstool, as we saw in Psalm 2. He is the king of kings. And when it's all said and done, every king and kingdom will bow the knee to the true king. That's where what begins in chapter 13 will end. And so by way of assurance, we are given chapter 12 as a preview of that, where God just takes down the great King Herod. What essentially unfolds here is a showdown between King Herod and King Jesus. And the, 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 the showdown unfolds in two ways, a competition of strength and a competition of glory. The strength and glory of King Herod versus the strength and glory of King Jesus. Let's see who wins. Thank you for bearing with me during that historical introduction. It's important to understand the text. Let's watch, let's watch the showdown through the lens of strength and glory. First strength. All right, now look at our text. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. This Herod is not the Herod that tried to have Jesus killed um, at his birth as an infant. This is the next Herod in the line of Herods, better known as Herod Agrippa. He was the Roman king over that Judea region of Rome's empire, which is a top of the modern-day Middle East. So, so modern-day Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and Syria. So everything that took place during the ministry of Jesus and during Acts up until this point took place in Herod's region of the empire. And what we are supposed to see in the simplicity of verse 1, and did you notice how just cavalier and simplistic it was? It's for a reason. What we are supposed to see here is just how powerful King Herod is. With a simple decree, a church leader the Apostle James, one of the sons of thunder, as Jesus affectionately called him, is executed by the sword. Well, the killing of James goes over well with his Jewish citizens that he's constantly trying to keep happy uh, so as to avoid a Jewish uprising in his kingdom. 
The Jewish citizens love that he has killed an apostle, so Herod takes it up another level. The text says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So he's essentially saying, oh, you like that one? Well, how about I get the lead guy? I'll arrest and kill him too. The problem was it was during the Passover, and it would be unthinkable to the Jewish people he governed to execute someone during the holy ceremony. So what he does is he throws Peter in prison for a few days, and when the Passover was finished, Peter would be finished. And he orders four squad soldiers, which was their form of maximum security, keep watch. Okay, so here's the picture. Um, one apostle dead. The lead apostle now in the most protected prison behind iron bars, gates, um, four soldiers guarding him and three-hour shifts is the way it worked. Two would be uh, shackled to Peter's arms. Two would stand guard at the door. And if the prisoner were to escape, the guards would be executed. So they were pretty motivated not to let that happen. Certainly an awesome display of power. Okay, Christianity, you survived Jewish authorities. Congratulations. You're messing with Rome now. And with just two commands, one apostle is beheaded and the lead apostle is locked in prison. What's this Jesus you call king going to do about that? Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Don't you love the contrast of power there? You have King Herod with the power of the Roman state on his side. And in contrast, you have this helpless group wielding the only weapon they possess, prayer. Now, verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light light shone in cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So the chains which bound Peter to the two guards just fall off. Angel says to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. He did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you, follow me. He went out, followed him. He did not know what, that what he was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. All of those details there of him, you know, kicking Peter and saying, wake up and tell him to put on his clothes and follow me and Peter not knowing, am I dreaming? Like, what's going on here? All of those are supposed to paint a picture of the state of Peter as he escapes. It's supposed to be comical, intentionally so. He's completely out of it, like he's sleepwalking. Angels having to tell him to wake up and put his clothes on and and all this stuff. He doesn't even know if he's really dreaming. Verse 10, when they pass the first and the second guards, they just walk right past the guards, who if they let them walk past the guards are going to be killed. They came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opens for them on its own accord. It just opens up. They went out, went along the street. Immediately, angel left him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself... He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. How's that for an understatement? You think? And so the observation that we are, we are to make in all of this is to simply behold the power of King Jesus who makes a mockery of kings of the earth. King Jesus wants his apostle back from King Herod and he will have him. And just to humiliate Herod's strength, his apostle is going to sleepwalk out of his prison. But the story doesn't stop there. Let's move from this competition of strength to this competition of glory. Now, historically, we know that Herod Agrippa was a man obsessed with his vanity. 
And his love for his own glory really comes out in the second half of the passage. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. So here's what happened historically. This region um, harmed Herod's very fragile ego. And so he enforced a, uh, some sort of embargo against them. And they convinced one of Herod's friends to let them come and plead for him for his mercy, which Herod loved. He loved to be in that position. Oh, come beg me for your mercy and maybe I'll grant it. Verse 21 is the day that he decides to do that. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So he's got his robe on, he's sitting on the throne, and he's, he's going to declare his mercy on these folks to their praise. Now here's where Josephus really helps our story, okay? Because he records this event in, in, in a lot of detail. Josephus says that the whole thing was just a crazy spectacle. Luke tells us that Herod put on a royal robe. Josephus describes that robe for us. Herod literally had a robe woven of pure silver, and it was a clear sunny day, and so as the people looked up at Herod the king in his silver robe, it was a blinding sight. And he takes his seat upon the royal throne to the praise and adoration of people. Verse 22 says, and the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Josephus says, upon their praise, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their flattery. So he receives the praise as though he is their God. Blinding silver robes sitting upon the throne saying, yes, tell me I'm your God. That's some serious vanity and glory. Even in our vain celebrity obsessed culture, I think we would say, that's probably taking it too far. But in the ancient world of Jesus and his apostles, earthly kings received divine-like praise. Okay, just as we saw King Jesus respond to King Herod's strength. Let's watch him respond to Herod's glory. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Eaten by worms. (laughs) What is that? Uh, Luke is a physician. The writer of Acts is a doctor. And he's actually using a medical term from the day. Uh, There was a danger in the ancient world of parasitic worms uh, balling up in your intestinal tract, which would lead to a very, very painful death, and they called it eaten by worms. And so what happens, this is amazing, what happens is that literally in the middle of Herod's great moment of praise and glory, God strikes him with this condition. Josephus tells tells us how it went down. So he's receiving praise and glory from the people. And Josephus says, And suddenly a severe pain arose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried off his throne into his palace where he later died. So the king goes from receiving the praise that belongs to God to violently ill before the ones praising him. And when I say violently ill, I won't go into details, but it's an intestinal issue here. He gets violently ill such that he doesn't have the strength to get get out himself. He has to be carried off of his throne to die. And here's the thing. This eaten by worms was a shameful death because it was associated with the poor and unhygienic for obvious reasons. That's how you get those worms. And so, to this day, Herod is remembered in infamy as the king who got eaten by worms after being called God. 
How's that for disgracing the glory of an earthly king? And then, in immediate comparison to the end of Herod, the story concludes with this simple statement, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The king is dead by King Herod, struck down by the judgment of God, but the word of God increased and multiplied as it always has and always will, no matter which earthly powers try to stop it. Increase and multiply it shall until the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So the strength of King Jesus mocked the strength of King Herod. The glory of King Jesus mocks the glory of King Herod. And such is the preview of when what begins in Acts reaches its final destiny where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is king alone. But of course, we're not there yet. Moving to application. What does this have to do with us this morning? Well, my answer to that is it depends upon who you are in this passage. A brief word to those listening in who do not call Jesus king. I want to suggest that essentially you are in a competition with Jesus, much like Herod. And I want to caution you that it's a competition you cannot win. What it means to be a sinner is we want to be our own king. We rebel against God's strength, his authority, his power, and we want to do what we want to do. We rebel against God's glory. We want to make a name for ourselves, not him. Now, we don't reach the levels of strength and glory like Herod, but that doesn't mean that that is not the sinner's ambition. It is. And my caution to you is very simple. That pursuit is destined to go the way of Herod. Friends, with all love and respect, every knee is going to bow to King Jesus, and that includes yours. Please, I beg you, do so now before it is demanded of you. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. For all who do are blessed for taking refuge in him. Surrender your strength, surrender your glory, and confess that Jesus is Lord so that you're not Herod in this passage, you're Peter. To those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus... What does this say to you? You are Peter, helpless, yes, but soon to be rescued and vindicated from all enemies. Now, I know you want it now, and so do I. And we should cry every day, come Lord Jesus. But make no mistake, the day of your salvation, your deliverance, your triumph, your vindication, the day you pine for will come to pass. Acts 12 is given to us as a reminder and assurance of where all of this is going to end. The earthly church, the early church certainly needed it. Look, Peter, it's, if, you, if you read this passage and say, well, he did it for Peter, why won't he do it for me? I want to be like Peter. No, you don't. Trust me. Peter gets delivered in our passage, but soon he will not be delivered. He will be crucified like his Savior. All the apostles will be martyred. And when Emperor Nero gets mad at Christians, it's going to turn into a bloody massacre for the early church. But the point of Acts 12, here at the beginning, right before they head off into the Roman Empire, is making 
is that it's not going to work. Nor will any attempt by any earthly power stop King Jesus because he truly is King of Kings. Let me close with an illustration that's on a lot of our minds today. As I said, things are about to get bloody um, for Christians in Rome. It's about to get nasty. 200 years after our passage, the Roman emperor at the time is, is Claudius. And Claudius is having a hard time getting soldiers to join the all-important Roman military. What he, his idea, his theory is, is that he, he blamed it on marriage, of all things. He basically says, I can't get any guys to join my military because they have too strong of a connection and love for their wives and children. So, this is what the emperor did. The emperor banned marriages in Rome. Well, Christians, who at that time, 200 years after his passage, they're all over Rome now. Christians, of course, had this high and sacred view of marriage, um, and, and, and they refused to obey this edict. In fact, the high and sacred view of marriage the world now has comes from the Christian view of marriage. And so they, they said, no, no, we're going to defy this edict. Most notably, there's one Christian minister who was performing marriage after marriage after marriage in secret. Claudius finds out about this guy, has him arrested and beheaded, and that man's name was Saint Valentine. And so today, literally today, we celebrate his sacrifice to preserve marriage and love within the Roman Empire. Now, a lot of Christians know that story. If you, if you know church history, you know that story. And a lot of Christians get mad because they say, this is such a, what we've done to this day, this is such a terrible way to um, honor a, a Christian martyr's death. But I think it's perfect that we remember a bloody Christian martyr at the hands of the Roman Empire with flowers, chocolates, and cheesy Hallmark cards. Because when it's all said and done, that's about how threatening the kings and kingdoms of this earth shall be. I know we want it now. I do. You do. And I do pray, come Lord Jesus, hasten the day of our deliverance from evil. At some point, he's going to answer that prayer we pray all the time throughout all the centuries, deliver us from evil. He's going to do it. One day, he's going to do it. And I say hasten the day. But this much we know, no matter the evil we face in this world, one day, our king will do to it what he did to Herod. One day, our strife will be as threatening as Valentine's Day. Let me pray. Lord, we, how can we not pray? Hasten the day. Make it today. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, vindicate your name. Vindicate your people. Rescue us. Subdue the nations in righteous judgment. Resurrect the saints and give them the glory and honor that you have promised. But until that day, we hold fast knowing that you are coming and one day your enemies will be your footstool and we will reign forever and ever. Give us that assurance, concrete assurance, as we go about our struggling lives. That this is true. This will come to pass. What you did at the beginning of the mission into the nations, you will do when all the nations are reached. Until then, Lord, nourish us with this sacrament that promises us that you shall come again. In Jesus' name.